Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All right, come on in the fridge. So walk into the walk-in. And we saved this guy from our, our delivery here. So it's a half, uh, half hog. This whole pig is 200 pounds, just shy of 200 pounds. So this will be just about 100 pounds. That's my butcher talking. My name is Peter Sanigan. I own Sanigan's Meat Locker. There are fat hams and giant legs of beef hanging all around us. And yep, this very large, very pink, whole side of pig. Okay, so let's pick this up. Peter bends at his knees, firms up his back, and in one clean motion... Uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to ask for your help. I'm going to pull it up. Yeah. Just grab the hook. There you go. Okay, in two clean motions, he deadlifts that half pig straight off a meat hook and into his arm. Thank you. Watch your backs. I gotta get a knife. I gotta get a knife. Knife. uh, Yeah, I didn't even set up my station. It's a busy morning. The man's got a lot on his mind. Anyway, now there's a hundred pound side of pork flopped out on Peter's cutting board. Today we're gonna be breaking down a whole pig. Awesome. Before he became a butcher, Peter was a chef, an extremely good chef. So the goal at Sanigans, no matter whether with beef or poultry or lamb or like today with pigs, is always to use the entire animal. And wherever possible, in really interesting ways. Just going to cut the, uh, the head away from the shoulder. So go just behind the cheek and then behind the skull there. Making sure we keep the ear intact, because that'll be good for um, head cheese is the main thing we use this for. After the head, he does the shoulder. And after the shoulder, he goes in on the ribs. As he saws and slices his way through that carcass, he starts tossing all the pieces into different piles. One pile is for the whole cuts, like chops and hams and spare ribs. That one is obvious. The cuts in that pile will get pride of place in Sanigan's display case. But a pig carcass contains a surprising amount of stuff you can't sell in a display case. People won't buy it. A lot of those cuts go into Sanigan's sausage and charcuterie piles. When you're doing this kind of work, you have to, you have to make your own sausage. Sausage, salami, deli sticks, uh, pepperoni sticks. They even make Italian guanciale, pig cheek bacon. People put it in spaghetti carbonara. At the bottom line, it's a means to use up stuff that you, you can't sell. Next to the trim pile, there's a bones pile. These are the uh, pork neck bones, which are great in um, like pork bone soup. And next to the bones pile, a skin pile. That we'll make chicharron out of. Chicharron are deep fried salted pork rinds. There's even a small pile of pork fat, leaf lard, that's perfect for making pie crusts. But the pile I'm most interested in, the one that brought me here, is the one with the really odd bits. Gnarly pieces of bone and skin and super gristly stuff that even a nose-to-tail butcher shop like Sanigan's can't use. And there's a surprising amount of it. That waste pile is a good five pounds. Plus, Peter says they'll usually have to throw out even more than that, a meat that goes off before it can be sold. That's basically it. So eight to 10% waste 
to be clear, that 10% is in addition to whatever was discarded at the slaughterhouse before this pig even got to Sanigans. A lot of that is skin, and as you saw, skin and bone that's not that good, and, like, that's the pig. Broken down, basically. Peter wipes his hands, sweeps that junk pile from his cutting board into a thick plastic tray, walks back into the meat locker, and tosses it all into this big green bin. There are four of them. They fill up quickly. Those bins will get rolled out onto the sidewalk a couple days from now. And this company that specializes in unwanted animal bits will come pick it up. And all that seemingly unusable stuff, it'll get used all right. From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food you eat. I'm Chris Nuttall-Smith. Those pig scraps, the bones and skin and grisly pieces, those bits will find their ways into some really unexpected parts of our everyday lives. They turn up in foods like dairy products and cheesecake, in cosmetics and prescription drugs. Those pig bits even help make the pavement that people walk on every day. In this episode, the rest of the pig. So I'll, I'll just have you uh, introduce yourself, if you don't mind saying your name, and maybe introduce the project that we're here to talk to you about as well. So my name is Christine Meindertsma, and I'm a designer. And uh, 10 years ago, I published a book called Pig 05049. And it was all about all the products that are made from a single pig. Before Christine came along, nobody outside the meat business had bothered to get answers to a really basic question. What happens to the rest of the pig? Her project, Pig 05049, took a full three years of research. And when she was finally done, when she'd found the answers, that research amounted to far more than just a book. There was an art exhibit, and of course there was a TED Talk. It was titled, How Pig Parts Make the World Turn. And for at least a couple of days of the news cycle, media from around the world went berserk over what she'd found. Even Christine had no idea how far-reaching it all was going to be. I didn't know so much about it. I just kept finding new things, and that surprised me. What were the ones that surprised you? Uh, well, the most surprising one was a bullet that is produced in the United States, where the gelatin is used in the production process. She found pig parts in sandpaper and life-saving drugs, in crayons and fabric softener. She found pig even in lightweight concrete, where a protein in their blood is used to fill it with air bubbles. She found pig in just about every part of her day. In the morning when you wake up, what pig products do you encounter, do you hold, do you use? Yeah, well, if you would eat, like, bread from the supermarket, like the sort of cheaper bread that stays good for a long time, there might be hair, or not hair, literally, but, like content of hair in the bread to keep it soft for a longer period of time. I thought that was quite strange. Sometimes there's added calcium in yogurt. That calcium is in some cases sourced from pig bones. Yeah, in desserts it's often gelatines as well. And what about cosmetics and bath products? Yeah, so there's like shampoos and uh, day creams, all kinds of stuff that use fatty parts of the pig in it. But then yeah, they are so, of course, transformed, the materials, that even if you would read the ingredient list on the package, you would still not recognize it as an animal. 
She found pig parts in toothpaste, soap, and face cream. And depending how posh you are, maybe it's even in the plates you eat breakfast off of or in your teacup. It's in Finebone, China, which is why Finebone, China is called that way. Christine's list goes on. For the paintbrushes, it's the hair. Like, I think people think that pigs are bold, but actually they are quite hairy. And on. It goes into a strange one is uh, filters of cigarettes. I don't know, because it's 10 years old, I don't know if these cigarettes are still produced, but at the time they were like a sort of healthier cigarette that was produced in Greece, where they used um, protein from the blood cells. Wow, to make a better filter for cigarettes. Yeah, and they claimed that it was like less harmful. All told, that single pig was transformed into 185 products. Doesn't that number alone kind of make you see pig parts everywhere you look? This is Barry Glotman. Barry runs West Coast Reduction, a rendering company. They're recyclers, but for leftover animal parts. The plant is in Vancouver, right on the waterfront. This single place gets 45 truckloads most days of animal bits, beef, poultry, pig, fish scraps, all of it. But honestly, if you're imagining this grisly, like, slasher movie scene, it isn't really like that. It's a low-slung industrial building with big steel tanks and silos all around it and pipes coming out of the roof. It could almost be a gas refinery. And even on the inside, it's pretty blandly industrial. Here's Barry. Basically, what you've got is you've really got a big room with two bays, big roll-up doors, the length of a big truck. This big room is where it all starts, where the stuff comes in. Truck pulls in, the roll-up door uh, comes down behind it so that we have odor control if there is any odor, and then uh, the truck dumps into a pit at the end of that room. The pit, it's what it sounds like. It's where all the bits go, but you can't actually see into it all that well. From the pit, everything gets pulled into a giant grinder. And then from the grinder, it's piped into this other room. Comes to our process room. In that room, all the bits are heated up. In the process room, what we have is uh, big cookers. And really, the cookers are like a big, long tube. And um, the raw material, after it's ground, is basically uh, pumped into one end of that big, long tube, heated with natural gas. And then what uh, comes out the end of the cooker, after the water's been evaporated away, is uh, protein and fat. The protein from solid hog bits is called porcine meal. And that stuff gets shipped out in bulk to other plants around the world. Other companies that specialize in turning porcine meal into things like animal feed and fertilizer. And the lard, the melted fat, as that goes further up the chain, all sorts of industries use it to make lubricants, biodiesel, car paint, cosmetics. Some of it even goes into the faces of certain celebrities. Also, it's called the liquid facelift, and one local doctor says a type of sugar could be the secret. It's a different type of collagen. It's porcine collagen. Injectable collagen sourced from pigs has been a go-to wrinkle filler since the 1970s. It's made from tendons in pigs. The bones of the pig become bone meal. And, okay, maybe this part is a little extra gross. They use the blood, too, because what else are you going to do with it? All that blood gets turned into blood meal, which is typically used as an ingredient in pet and livestock food. But the basic process, the core thing they do at plants like West Coast Reduction, 
is they grind up bits and they cook them down. It's just as if like you put a, a ham in the oven and you woke up in the morning, you'd end up with a puddle of fat and some gristle at the top and it would be half the size if you let it go that long. My dad is also an animal scientist. He brought me to my first packing plant when I was 16. Jessica Meisinger swears that the first time she toured a rendering plant, she fell in love with the place. He told me to tell them I was 18 because you're not (laughs) supposed to be in them yet. Fantastic. Jessica's got a PhD in meat science. She's a director at the National Renderers Association in Alexandria, Virginia. And while we were going through it, I kept watching the uh, scraps go down holes, and I asked where they went to, and he said rendering, and I asked if we were going to tour that, and of course we were not, but he said he'd ask if we could, and we could, and when we went down there, I don't think people got tours of rendering very often, because the supervisor was truly excited to see us, Wow! and um, it was just fascinating to see the items getting used, everything getting used. I've loved manufacturing since I was a small child. And watched crayons getting made on Sesame Street. So I've always loved factories and manufacturing, and it was just another piece. The National Renderers Association represents 95% of the industry. And according to the association's figures, all those companies put together account for a $10 billion slice of North America's economy. It's bigger than people think. We collect 56 billion pounds of raw material every year in the U.S. and about another 6 billion in Canada. So it's a lot of raw materials. If those were allowed to build up, they would fill up every available inch of every landfill within four years. (laughs) That's what you learn in meat science. I like those kind of things. So, yeah, $10 billion industry, 56 billion pounds. It is bigger than a lot of people think. But maybe that's not saying much. Most people don't think about their rendering industry at all. Here's Barry Glotman. Well, in the past, the um, renders, we used to say it was the invisible industry because we didn't really want to talk about it because, you know, people really didn't want to know potentially where the bones and the fat and the blood went to, okay? So really up until a number of years ago, you know, we would say we were the invisible industry. People really didn't ask the question. And even today, it can still feel that way. The company that collects Peter Sanigan's unusable pile from the butcher shop, they're called Rothsay. And Rothsay is owned by this huge company called Darling International. We spent more than a month trying to get through to Darling, on the phone, by email, to talk to somebody, anybody. And, well, I guess they must have just been really busy or something. But if you ask Jessica Meisinger, as a whole, the rendering industry's opened up. Ten years ago? People started caring a lot about transparency, number one. I know my generation, if you don't tell me something, then I assume you're hiding it. So that's the generational change occurred as well. And on top of that, people really do care about sustainability now. They really uh, want to know that everything's getting used. They want to feel good about their choices. And we have a good story to tell, and we can help people feel good about their choices. Barry calls renderers the original recyclers. So if suddenly we weren't around, the city would have to find a place for that extra 250,000 metric tons of raw material. That's a huge amount. garbage. But we don't call it garbage because to us it's a valuable byproduct. And for Jessica, the lessons she learned on that first rendering plant tour when she turned 16, 
they still inform what she does today. This was in the mid-90s, and people weren't that interested in sustainability yet. It hadn't really caught on. And the idea that we were using every piece of an animal was very important to me. I think it's pretty disrespectful to kill an animal and not use it all. So uh, it really mattered to me that we were using everything. It was so neat to see how it was getting used. These days, the department Jessica runs funds all sorts of research into possible new uses for rendered animal parts, like in your car. One of our projects was a researcher was seeing how he could use rendered animal proteins to make a polymer for automobiles. And his thought was there's a real push to make cars that are more fuel efficient and lighter and more sustainable, more recyclable. And starting with a material that's already so sustainable and recyclable gets you there faster. And when you say polymers, what was he trying to make or trying to find? He was making whatever goes into, like, a car door. It was self-healing as well. So if it got scratched, it kind of popped back out. Self-healing car doors. Yeah. From rendered animal parts. Yep. I think every person with a teenager would like to have that. (laughs) Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. The thing about the rest of the pig, though, is it doesn't only find its way into our lives because of the rendering industry. In some ways, what happens long before rendering at slaughterhouses and processing plants has even more of an everyday impact. There are a number of parts that have real value. I mean, pituitary glands are one of them, but those those would be separated out mainly at at a packing plant. This is Steve Meyer. S-T-E-V-E-M-E-Y-E-R. He's a pork market analyst with a company called EMI Analytics. He works from Stillwater, Oklahoma. You know, most packing plants have a head processing line that will remove salivary glands, pituitary glands. You know, at one time there was a a good deal of insulin recaptured from pig pancreases Hmm. and used for humans. Um, That's not a big deal anymore. Mainly we have synthetic insulin, but... Uh, That's really just a part of uh, capturing value from the carcass. Even pigs' stomachs come into play because they contain this enzyme called pepsin that's used to make cheese. And pepsin is not this obscure ingredient exactly. It used to be a key part of manufacturing cream of wheat cereal. And you know the old-time toothpaste called Pepsodent? Where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Pepsodent. Just take a guess why it had that name. And even Beeman's chewing gum used to be made with the stuff. In the 1950s, if your chewing gum contained pig stomach enzymes, that was a major selling point. Follow your meals with Beeman's pepsin chewing gum. Beeman's aids digestion. 
But all those parts, those innards, considering how useful they are, it's amazing to see how little they sell for. The U.S. Department of Agriculture actually keeps a running list, updates it every week. And in an average 280-pound hog, the salivary glands, for instance, are worth nine cents at wholesale. Which, like, how do you even get those out of there to make it worth the nine cents? And pig spleens, which in the industry are called melts, those go for just a penny a piece. But for other parts, parts that we can at least assume are more valuable, it's harder to learn the actual price. What any packer would sell implant-eligible heart valves for, for instance, um, I don't know what that price is because that's not a publicly quoted price. So hmm. The reason they're called implant-eligible heart valves is those particular pig bits, they're transplanted into humans, have been since the 1960s, to replace worn-out valves. Other pig parts are repurposed to repair hernias and rotator cuff injuries. And some parts are so valuable for their medical uses that Smithfield Foods, the world's largest pork processor, recently opened its own biosciences division to tap into the transplant market. Their goal when they bring an animal into a plant is to capture all the value they can. And so if that animal is uh, from a health standpoint, from a size standpoint, all that is if it's eligible to make those kind of products and the price they can receive justifies the cost of extracting them, they're going to do it. And so there's been talk of, you know, genetically engineering pigs so that they can make kidneys that would work for people. That hasn't been done yet. <laughs> Given everything else we can do with genetic engineering, it probably can be done. It feels like it's probably um, so, two weeks away, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't know where it stands, but it could be right. for all I know. All that everydayness of pig parts, the way they find their way into almost everything, there's a lot of ways you can react to that. Christine Meindertzma's response was, if we're going to use pigs, if they're so valuable to us, maybe humans should be treating pigs better while they're still alive. I'm not really convinced that the pigs are better off. Last year, I think two farms burned down in the Netherlands because the conditions are just really bad. So in that sense, I did not really, I think, succeed yet. But um, people are buying more animal-friendly meat, so maybe I just think it should go faster. Right after Christine's work was published, she had a chance to see how other people were reacting too. One time there was a exhibition about the book in the Kunsthal in Rotterdam, and then I sometimes went there just to listen what people were saying, because then they... I thought it would be like an honest opinion because they didn't know I made it. And I thought it was nice that they had sort of like open discussions with each other about it. Some person would say, oh, it's great that they use everything to the last bit. And some other person would say, but I'm horrified that this is in, you know. So I thought that was nice that it sort of opened up discussion about it. If you're somebody who abstains from eating pork, though, for health or ethical reasons or because you keep kosher or halal, it can make simple tasks like grocery shopping a minefield. When I'm at the grocery store, I spend 20 minutes more than the average person, but I know the ingredients to look out for food. For health and beauty, it's a little bit different. It's harder because they're more technical ingredients, but for food, absolutely, I can pick it up like very quickly. <laughs> This is Salima Jivraj. She's the founder and editor of a website devoted to halal restaurants and cooking. It's called halalfoodie.ca. Observing the rules of halal eating, and especially avoiding pork, is a really fundamental thing for most of the world's Muslims. What are the everyday products that you just can't use? 
Marshmallows? <laughs> What's wrong with marshmallows? They have gelatin. Gelatin is often, though not always, made from pork collagen. It was brutal for me to find out, too, because growing up, I, my family wasn't, at, like, they weren't as careful. But then when I personally started being more careful with what I was eating and I found out that marshmallows and gummy candies and all that have gelatin, it was like a life-altering moment. Salima has become a go-to source for people who want to know if there's pig hidden in their food and in the products they use. I've actually asked her to come over to my house. I'm hoping to put her to the test. Do you want to come look through my fridge? Which is a disaster, by the way. I'm like, I haven't cleaned it in a long time. But I'd actually love to see, like, just take a look and scan and tell me, like, what has pork in it? There may be ham in the drawer, so you don't need to tell me about that. I'll ignore that one. Okay, so the first thing, I'm just going to go into your your dairy, or sorry, your um, deli cabinet, because I know that that's an easy one. These are my cheese slices that I put on burgers (laughs) and cheddar cheese. You're getting into all my embarrassing stuff here. But what's? come on, this isn't a pig product. It's cheese. There's the one. So that is for sure pig, lipase. So this does have pork in it. There's pork in my cheese slices. Yes, for sure. I checked this out. And though lipase is sometimes made from yeast these days instead of animal enzymes, yep, these cheese slices use the animal kind, which typically comes from hog pancreas. Greek yogurt is fine, you, and you have a lot of Greek yogurt. Oh, feta. Okay, so this might, this might have something. Lipase. Your feta also has lipase in it. My feta cheese, also made with pig. Yes. Yeah. Now that's embarrassing. My crappy manufactured <laughs> Caesar salad. Is, go ahead. I didn't buy it. I don't know how it got in there. Um, okay, so this is this is not okay. It has. Um, well, it doesn't call out what's in the cheese. So it says Parmesan and Romano cheese, but it doesn't doesn't list the ingredients of those things and I'm almost 100% sure because I have called this company before and they've let me know that it does have the lipase in those cheeses that they do add to this dressing. So you can have pork in products but the products those products are made from you don't get the ingredients for. Exactly. So you have no idea. No. I've called a lot of companies for that reason because it's not listed. Um, So yeah. I even get Salima to check out a bunch of toiletries and cosmetics of mine. And good news if you're not into pig ingredients, most of them were okay. Though, you know those easy-to-swallow gel cap pills? They're really common in cold medicines and prescription drugs. The gel in the name is short for gelatin. So it's either made from plant products or from pig. It just depends on the manufacturer. As she's leaving, I want to know how Salima deals with all the pork out there. No matter how hard she tries or how much it matters to her, pig products are just an inescapable part of her everyday life. As you leave here today, you're going to walk out on concrete that may be made with animal byproducts. You're going to get in your car that has motor oil that may be used with rendered animal pig fat. Yeah, yeah, you just can't think of that. I, I mean, it's it's a lot better than it was before. We're living in a time where things are manufactured in high volume, and now manufacturers are looking for alternatives that are less expensive, so that's where you find synthetic things. Um, so animal byproduct, yes, it's present, but we're safer now than we were 10, 20 years ago for sure. You know, there's a larger Muslim population. Immigration is certainly changing the demographics. There's also veganism. There's a lot more people who are interested in vegetarianism. Loads of Hindus who don't eat yeah. beef products. How does all this 
gather steam? Does it make things easier? Yes, because it's not just one group that's kind of asking for things to change. It's several. And it's also a general population. I mean, even if you eat everything, people are still interested in, in knowing what's in their food, right? It's very much on trend, like knowing what the backstory is, knowing and having corporate responsibility as well. Like people are demanding that companies are transparent. So when you have all these groups coming together asking for more information about where food is from, then it just happens naturally. And that's what we found over the past few years. A few years ago, an urban myth started flying around the internet about, well, maybe you heard it, imitation calamari. According to this myth, some restaurants were secretly replacing squid with sliced hog bung, the thick, rubbery, terminal end of a pig's intestine. This American Life, the radio show, even did a segment about it. The point of the piece was to show how these sorts of runaway rumors get started. But for some people, the radio bit only made the possibility of imitation calamari seem more real. It actually helped the urban myth spread. And for me, all I could think was, well, pig parts are way more ubiquitous than people think they are. I thought that, and I figured, hey, I'm a professional food critic. If anybody tried to sneak imitation calamari into my dinner, no way. Hey, Missy. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm Missy Hoy. I'm the chef de cuisine at Fabrica Restaurant. Fabrica is an Italian spot in Toronto. Today I'm going to try and fool Chris Nettlesmith into eating hog bun instead of calamari. <laughs> what you need to know about Missy is Missy is this force of nature. She's wearing one of those old-time bike racer hats with the brim flipped up. And she's got this smile on her face that's all smart confidence. Missy is down for just about any challenge. Anyway, she leads me through Fabrica's kitchen into the walk-in and pulls out this big, white, 30-liter bucket. So we even, you can see our fridge is very organized. Everything is, every bucket has a lid. I was so worried that I would forget about the bung and it would be the worst smell on the, on the, on the planet. It's the one bucket that's wrapped in saran wrap so that we could see what it was. Oh my God. Yeah, you're in for a treat, let me tell you. That is a giant bucket of bung. Yes, it is. Under that cling wrap, it's this tangle of intestine. And it's thicker than you might think. As thick as a really fat, really well-made garden hose. Okay. I'm about to stick my nose in. Don't go too close. Don't go too close. Oh. Yeah, see? Well, it smells like somebody needs a shower. You know, oh, like it's, it's really bad, yeah. So what we did, actually, is we cleaned a lot of the fat. We turned it inside out. There's fat, there's, like, little brown specks. Yeah, so like I said, we purged like crazy. So don't worry. I, like, you, <laughs> I'll, show you, I'll show you the finished product after, and it was blanched as well. Wow. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, no, I trust you. It's, uh, and it's soaked for two days before I put it in the bucket. So these are, this is basically what we've done. That so looks like squid. It kind of does. And so if you kind of see, it has like a light membrane on the outside. But if you remove it, you lose the chewy texture you're looking for in a mock squid. But I, I paid 19 cents more a pound for the hog bung than I did the squid. Okay, so tell me, how much was the hog bung per pound? Uh, three seventy-nine. And how much is the squid? Three fifty is what I paid. So pig intestine is more valuable. You pay more for it than this piece of seafood that comes from like halfway across the continent or the world. This is what I did, yeah. So we're standing by the deep fryer. I've been running down the clock as long as I can. Missy's clearly got stuff to do. Uh, I might get you to turn around so that you don't see what's going on, but... Uh... <laughs> 
So I'm just gonna fry the squid. It's uh, in buttermilk. I'll fry the squid first, actually, um, and then it's into some seasoned flour, really light. Like we're, I'm trying to fool him, but I don't want it to be overpowering and taste like something that it's not. And then we'll get that right in the fryer. After the squid, she does the bung. I still have my back turned, so I have no idea at this point what's happening behind me. She plates them up, then leads me over to a table. And in truth, I'm starting to feel kind of hungry. Okay, this looks amazing. These plates look the same. I don't know that I can tell which is which. So I'm gonna grab right here? Yeah. Okay. I randomly reach for one of the plates. Tastes like really good batter. And I had like a, a, a strange finish, but it's not strange. I think it's just pepper. I don't know. It tastes like good calamari to me. Okay, next. I eat another piece. A little bit chew. Longtime food critic. I'm kind of proud of my palate. I'm able to distinguish between stuff. I, 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 I have no idea. Okay, there we go. And then I have another piece, and... Oh yeah, that's the bung. Bingo. Did I just eat bung? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's pig-like, isn't it? Yeah, see the end. It's the end. It's really tasty. I know. Like, I was not expecting, like, you could almost, like... Yeah? Couldn't you run this as a special? I don't know if we're there yet. <laughs> uh, all my staff's eating it. Like, it's, it's not bad. It's just not what you expect if you order calamari. I mean, the thing about this urban myth, which is how it all started, people were freaking out. They're like, oh, pig bun, like, how could anyone ever eat that? But it's pretty common, isn't it? It's a sausage casing, so you're not necessarily eating it. But in terms of, like, being in food that your average person has consumed, 100% you've had something that's been in contact with hog bun if you eat pork. And I guess maybe that's kind of the lesson, isn't it? We can fixate all we want about weird, made-up stories, about myths like imitation calamari. But meanwhile, pig bits, even the strangest pig bits, are already all around us. And most people just have no idea. At least that's one of the lessons. The other lesson, and I can say this with 98, maybe 99% certainty, for now at least, one of the few places you won't find pig bits is on your calamari plate. A lot of labor doing this. Too. It was insane, which is why I was like, I don't know why anybody would ever try and pass this off because it's so much more work than just buying squid. Like, just buy it. Like, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna wash my hands a thousand times right now. This is The Fridge Light, and the voices you heard today were Peter Sanigan of Sanigan's Meat Locker, designer and author Christine Meindertzma, Barry Glotman of West Coast Reduction, Jessica Meisinger of the National Renderers Association, Steve Meyer of EMI Analytics, Salima Jivraj of halalfoodie.ca, Missy Hoy of Fabrica Restaurant. Thanks, Missy, for cooking for me. Thanks also to Matt Muse and Bart Hofenars. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey, Paolo Pietropaolo, Michelle Macklem, Zoe Tennant, Alison Broverman, and me, Chris Nottle-Smith, with additional music and sound design by Paolo Pietropaolo and Veronica Simmons. Our executive producer is Arif Norani. 
Like what you're hearing? Give the Fridge Light a squeal on Apple Podcasts. Write us a review. We would appreciate it. For more information on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. And if you know about other products that pigs find their way into, tell us about it. Connect with us on Twitter and share photos on Instagram at FridgelightCBC. I'm Chris Noddle-Smith. Sweet! For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.